Welcome back once again to A Year With, the podcast where we will learn more about great ideas from our common history, good ideas and bad ones, by reading together for an entire year. Again, for 2022, we're exploring the Harvard Classics, also known as Dr. Elliot's Five-Foot Shelf of Books, which is a world literature anthology published from 1909 to around 1970. So for new listeners, that in that collection of books, the first volume is a one-year suggested reading plan, and I'm following that plan every week. And my goal, again, is to encounter each reading selection with a spirit of curiosity and discovery. I recommend going back to the introduction episode if you are new so you can get a sense of what this is all about. So we're now on the third week, January 15th through January 21st, and we have read this week uh, The Rubiat of Omar Khayyam, The Old Woman in the Wine Jar, from Aesop's Fables, another piece from Ben Franklin's autobiography, something from the play The Frogs from the ancient Greek playwright Aristophanes, some literary criticism from Edgar Allan Poe, John Keats' Eve of St. Agnes, and one of Hans Christian Andersen's folktales, The Nightingale. So let's get started. For January 15th, uh, the selection for that day was the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam. I remember encountering this one back in school, and I vaguely remember thinking that rubiat was some kind of super exotic sounding term for proverbs or reflections, but now that I've gone back to look at it, it just means quatrains or verses with four lines. It's very ordinary, but it sounds so cool in Persian. So this selection is a translation, or maybe better yet, an interpretation from Persian to English by the poet Edward Fitzgerald. So this version was published in 1859, but the original was written in the 11th or 12th century and was attributed to Omar Khayyam, who we can best describe with the word polymath, a word that we don't use as much as we should um, as a type of person who's accomplished in many different things. So I feel like polymaths, and I'm thinking of people like Thomas Jefferson or Isaac Newton, um, they're far rarer in our world where we value high specialization. A polymath is often kind of a generalist. Anyway, this one was challenging because I feel very far removed from the context in which it was written, in time and in culture. So my first impression of this text was that if I were writing the wisdom literature in the holy scriptures of a religion devoted to alcohol, I wouldn't write anything new. I would just adopt the rubiat as is. Um, it sort of has that vanity, vanity, all is vanity note that you get in the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible, where life seems to have no enduring meaning or purpose. So in Ecclesiastes, this like musing or riffing on meaninglessness and futility, it does find a rest and respect and obedience toward God. Um, though I, I know that there are some that interpret that as kind of being tacked on to an otherwise completely skeptical text. Um, but the Rubiat finds its rest in the endurance of wine as the closest thing we can find to a universal value. So otherwise, life here is just a place where we're passing through from nothingness to nothingness, like a caravanserai, or, uh, and that term means an inn for travelers. Um, but we're not really going anywhere. Fundamentally, you see kind of this 
Epicurean philosophy at work here, that kind of pragmatic atheism where there's no good other than to seek pleasure and avoid pain, and avoiding pain being the only reason to limit the pursuit of pleasure. I've always felt this line of reasoning, even if it was true, is kind of empty. If I fully accepted it, I would probably find it reasonable. And again, if it were true, maybe I would make wine my absolute value as well. I mean, why not? Does it matter? That's where I leave that one. Um, on the 16th, we have a selection from one of Aesop's fables. Um, if you aren't familiar with Aesop's fables, they're a collection of these very short stories or parables that are attributed to Aesop, who was a Greek storyteller and ugly slave who um, is said to have lived around the 6th century BC. So each story, it's usually just a few lines, they teach some kind of proverb or little nugget of wisdom, and they culminate in the point of the story, right? The, the moral of the story is blank. After my son and I read a translation of Aesop's fables uh, a little over a year ago, he became obsessed with making our own version of Aesop's fables, and we put together an actual book with pictures and stories and everything, with titles like The Two Wasps and the little cow in the interstate highway, and the 12 kid hamsters, with aphorisms at the end like, listen to your parents, and take care of your home, and never do something that someone bad wants you to do. Um, the story that Dr. Elliot gives us today is the old woman in the wine jar, which is simple enough. It begins with, you must know that sometimes old women like a glass of wine. Indisputable statement of fact. Um, she finds a wine jar on the road and hoped to find it full. Instead, it was empty. So she just smelled it, and it ends with the aphorism. So she says, quote, What memories cling round the instruments of our pleasure? End quote. A few comments. This one goes very well with the Rubiot, and I think that Dr. Elliot might have been enjoying a few stiff drinks while choosing this selection for this week. On January 17th, we are back to Benjamin Franklin. Another guy who we could use the word polymath to describe. Again, he was the early American leader who was uh, among the signers of the Declaration of Independence. And based on an internet search where I'm trying to learn new things in anticipation of a trivia night, I've learned that he was a vegetarian, which must have been a lot harder in the days before refrigeration, and veggie burgers, and protein supplements. Um, the section for this day is the opening pages from Franklin's autobiography. So here he sets forth his purpose. This an autobiography is one of the few ways that a man has the chance to live his life once again, correcting his faults by reflecting on them. So he's proud of his achievements in life. Um, he's moving from, as he says here, poverty and obscurity to a state of affluence and some degree of reputation in the world, um, which is reflected by the epitaph that he recounts, which he purchased on stone for his parents after their death. It says, Josiah Franklin and Abiah his wife lie here interred. They lived lovingly together in wedlock 55 years without an estate or any gainful employment by constant labor and industry. With God's blessing, they maintained a large family comfortably and brought up 13 children and seven grandchildren reputably. From this instance, reader, be encouraged to diligence in thy calling and distrust not providence. He was a pious and prudent man, she a discreet and virtuous woman. Their youngest son, in filial regard to their memory, places this stone. As with the previous selection, his honesty about his own foibles is refreshing and kind of disarming. 
Um, he admits that the writing of an autobiography involves indulging a good bit of vanity and then kind of makes a defense of that positive value of having a little vanity in our lives. Um, he recounts his immediate ancestors and upbringing up to jo Josiah, his father, and Abiah, his mother. Between Josiah's two wives, Josiah had 17 children in his life, of which Franklin was the youngest, so he got a little bit of a baby syndrome there. Does the spoiling of the youngest child, you know, compound in a family that large? Like, how spoiled was he? Um, but Franklin mentioned that his father initially meant him for a career in the church as what he called a tithe of his sons. It occurred to me that since a tithe is an offering of a tenth, Josiah could have spared two children to the church if he wanted and still held pretty close to the principle of a tithe. Um, anyway, Franklin here leads the reader briefly through his humble but virtue-building upbringing. Um, he offers praise to his parents and he recounts the text of the gravestone that I mentioned earlier, um, which also I must wonder if the stone engraver was like, uh, I think that you could cut this down a little bit, bud. Um, but he also heard the advice from his father that many young men have heard when they said they wanted to quit school and join a band. Um, Franklin recounts that his father discouraged his poetry writing, noting that Verse makers were generally beggars. Um, we see a lot of Franklin's character here, and the genius of his approach is that even if he makes himself look better than he truly was, through the discussion of vanity, he set out to tell us he was going to do that. So it's pretty brilliant. Um, again, as with other texts from Benjamin Franklin, this work reads so gracefully and contemporary in manner that it's sometimes hard to believe that it was written in the 1700s. For January 18th, we now return to the Greek playwrights. In a previous week, we read from Euripides' The Bacchae. Euripides uh, lived in the 5th century BC. This play, The Frogs, from Aristophanes, was performed the year after Euripides' death. So in The Frogs, the god Dionysus is on a mission to the underworld, to Hades, to bring back Euripides from the dead, because of the sad state of playwriting in Greece at that time. So Euripides then kind of represents this better time or golden age, so to speak, in Aristophanes' opinion, and it allows him to honor Euripides. The selection here is the opening scene from the play, where Dionysus and his slave Xanthius are discussing what kind of jokes to tell, seemingly kind of a criticism of bad jokes told by other playwrights, and they're called out by name. These jokes are so bad that Dionysus ages a year every time he hears them. Um, Xanthius here serves as kind of the, you know, the wise fool, the low status character who regularly outsmarts his master, um, which in this case is not just a master, but a god. So in this opening section, the plan for getting to the underworld and back involves dressing up like Heracles. Heracles was Dionysus's half-brother, who was the only one who had actually made it to Hades and back to get Cerberus, the multi-headed dog. So this is the reason for the lion skin that Dionysus is dressed in, in this opening scene here, to imitate Heracles. And uh, their consultation with Heracles, it leads to this wonderfully morbid discussion on the most efficient way to get to Hades. So a rope and a bench, or hemlock, or jump off a tower... Um, but upon arriving at the lake before Hades, Dionysus is allowed in the boat to ferry across with, with his chair on, while Xanthius has to walk around as a slave. So enter the frogs. 
I suppose that frogs don't ribbit in all cultures. So apparently to Aristophanes, frogs go brekekekex, coax, coax, which is really not a bad rendition of some frogs. I like it. Dionysus is annoyed by the frogs, but he engages in a debate with them. Their role here seems to be more comic relief than like a substantial addition to the narrative. Either way, we don't get far enough into the narrative to see how it turns out in this selection. So this selection serves to give an initial taste of Aristophanes and to provide a sample of the different phases and the back and forth of Greek tragedians. So Greek plays were not just one thing in one time, but there were different styles and cultural values at play and interaction with one another, just as we see in our day. This serves to make the time period more relatable and realistic to our modern minds when we tend to compress ancient time periods into one thing. Also, I learned a new word, crapulous, when the frogs sing of Dionysus' followers as the revel, tipsy throng, all crapulous and gay. Crapulous means affected by alcohol. So I am going to use that whether anyone wants me to or not. On January 19th, we are given The Poetic Principle, which is a piece of literary criticism from Edgar Allan Poe, the uh, early 19th century American poet and writer who died in 1849. The Poetic Principle was published after his death and was derived from a lecture. So it's simple enough. He locates the value and even the definition of a poem, what makes a poem a poem, in its effect on the reader. So to him, this has a lot to do with the length of a poem. The short ones are too short to sustain a spiritual elevation and are better considered less poems and more like epigrams or proverbs. While long poems like epic poems, which had been in fashion at the time, they oversaturate the appetite, kind of like the difference between having a bowl of macaroni and cheese and having a 55-gallon drum of macaroni and cheese. What's most shocking here, though, is the claim that when the enthusiasm of the reader fails, as he says, quote, the poem is, in effect, and in fact, no longer such. So it's the response of the reader that makes a poem a poem. Obviously, this is aggressively debatable. Um, it seems like it goes without saying that a bad poem is still a poem. Or, or say, a poem that can't be understood. So if I were to see a haiku written in the original Japanese, it's still a poem even if the word if the word has any definition at all, but like I don't understand it and it has no effect on me because I can't read Japanese. Um, this assertion kind of seems to me to be like an attention-grabbing claim or I don't know, maybe something to excuse Poe's own failures at writing successful long poems. Um, the more insightful part of this essay, though, is determining what a poem ought to be used for. So he criticizes very strongly the notion of didactic poetry. That would be like literature whose value is located in the truths it communicates. It's a teaching tool, didactic poetry. He refers to this as a heresy. Um, you begin to see in this essay an adaptation of the, you know, the three transcendentals or virtues of beauty, truth, and goodness. You'll often see those those three uh, placed next to each other as as transcendental values. As Poe explains here, though, poetry cannot be meant for the communication of truth, since the truth 
demands simplicity, as he describes it here, simple, precise, terse, cool, calm, unimpassioned. These attributes are really valuable, but they're the opposite of poetry. Poetry directed toward the moral sense, um, toward the good, is also didactic and can be excluded. So through a deduction, this leaves us with beauty as a fundamental value of true poetry. A beautiful poem can be true or untrue. A beautiful poem can lead a person to virtue or vice, but it can still excite the emotions and the aesthetic taste, and thus it's true poetry. So truth and goodness are valuable, but their communication should be left to something other than poetry. Deeper in the essay, he defines quote, the poetry of words as the rhythmical creation of beauty. So thereby, poetry and beauty are inseparably linked. While you might challenge that definition, it has some heft and insight in this assertion here in a way that's a lot stronger than the very definition that he gives us of a poem itself. And speaking of poetry, the selection for January 20th is appropriately the Eve of St. Agnes. So the feast day of St. Agnes, who, uh, and the early 4th century martyr, who was said to have like considered herself a spouse of Jesus and stayed true to those vows all the way up to her early execution at the age of 13, because the 20th is the eve of St. Agnes. So there was a customary practice at the time that you kind of have to understand to get the poem. Um, the practice is that if a young girl performed certain rituals on the eve of St. Agnes, that she would see her future husband in a dream. So Keats's poem here is based on those customs. So the poem here was written in, in 1819, and the setting is on a cold January night, obviously. It's set, though, in an older time, maybe a more medieval time. You can contrast this heavy medieval Catholic imagery with the Protestant, more modern England in which he lived with the, the beadsmen and the chapel and the incense. Um, the setting, the time setting is further carried out by the stanzas that Keat uses here. Uh, we call it Spenserian, and that's named after the stanzas that Edmund Spencer used in his epic poem, The Fairy Queen, which was written in the 1590s. And it, it was an allegorical poem in honor of Queen Elizabeth I. But the Fairy Queen itself, written in 1590s, was written in a deliberately archaic and late medieval style. And you can then kind of use Spencer to evoke the medieval. So a Spencerian stanza has eight lines in iambic pentameter, um, followed by one line of iambic hexameter. And the rhyme scheme is like A, B, a, B, B, C, B, C, C. So I'll give you a first stanza of Canto One in Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen to give you a sense of what it would sound like. A gentle knight was pricking on the plain, clad in mighty arms and silver shield, wherein old dents of deep wounds did remain, the cruel marks of many a bloody field. Yet arms till that time did he never wield, his angry steed did chide his foaming bit as much disdaining to the curb to yield. Full jolly knight he seemed, and fair did sit, as one for knightly jousts and fierce encounters fit. So compare that to the first stanza of the Eve of St. Agnes. St. Agnes' Eve, a bitter chill it was. The owl, for all his feathers, was a cold. The hare lipped trembling through the frozen grass, and silent was the flock in woolly fold. Numb were the beadsman's fingers while he told his rosary 
and while his frosted breath, like pious incense from a censer old, seemed taking flight for heaven without a death, past the sweet virgin's picture, while his prayer he saith. So this poem here begins with the prayers of an old beadsman, itself betraying that kind of medieval Catholic setting. A beadsman is an elderly person who says prayers for a benefactor. So we meet Madeline, who performs the necessary rituals on the eve of St. Agnes. She skips supper before bed. And Porphyro is from a rival family who is an enemy of Madeline's family. And he's kind of hot for Madeline. I say that, but it's in the text. Young Porphyro with heart on fire for Madeline. Um, he sneaks into the castle, risking his life. Um, this family, quote, whose very dogs would execrations howl against his lineage. So in this, it parallels the familiar story of Romeo and Juliet with the Capulet and Montagues, they sworn enemies, and Romeo and Juliet enacting that forbidden love. Porphyro learns that Madeline is expecting to see her future lover in a dream, and she does see him in her dream in a sort of immortal state, and when she awakes, she sees him in his mortality, which she fears because of that contrast between his mortal state in the immortal dream state in which she has just seen him. So through an enchantment, Porphyro enters her dream state, and they are brought together in this sort of erotic marriage. Um, they flee the castle, since the guests have been partying and they're drunk, uh, and Porphyro promises to make a home for them. The poem ends after they have fled with the death of the beadsman, beadsman after, uh, quote, a thousand aves told, for I unsought, for slept among his ashes cold. Uh, here the old things have died, the new things are coming, free of the conflict and the fear and the struggle that's come before. All right, for January 21st, we have one of Hans Christian Andersen's modern folktales. Andersen was a Danish writer in the 19th century who wrote modern folktales inspired by traditional folktales. So Andersen is the source of stories like The Little Mermaid and The Princess and the Pea, Many of these stories that many of us know about, but we don't know where they came from. This one's set in China, where we have to understand that the emperor is a Chinaman, and all whom he has about him are Chinamen too, I guess as you would expect. The empire becomes enamored, though, with the beautiful sound of the nightingale. The emperor wants to keep the nightingale at court, even though his song is more beautiful in the woods. Then they receive an artificial mechanical nightingale from Japan. Ultimately, though, the mechanical bird breaks and becomes delicate. The emperor grows older and he's on his deathbed. And beautifully, death sits on his chest. And his good and bad deeds are all around him. It's this beautiful image of one's deathbed. Um, the real nightingale, though, arrives and coaxes away death with this incredible song, giving up. Uh, quote, a splendid golden sword, a rich banner, and the emperor's crown for a song. There are a number of interpretations for this text, perhaps like the greater value of the natural and authentic over the mechanical and the artificial, or maybe about the enchantment of music. Um, one interpretation, which is not in Eliot's notes, has to do with Anderson's kind of one-way love for the opera singer Jenny Lind, who was called the Swedish Nightingale. The autobiographical reading is it's interesting, but it's unnecessary to this story. Okay, that's all for this week. Um, you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash zach.garrett, Z-A-C-H dot G-A-R-R-E-T-T. And you can email me at zach.garrett at outlook.com if you have any feedback. Next week, we get some real old-time religion 
with Corniel's account of Polyucte, with Dante, and the imitation of Christ. Christ.